The Boats of the Glen Carrig by William Hope Hodgson. Being an account of their adventures in the strange places of the earth after the foundering of the good ship Glen Carrig through striking upon a hidden rock in the unknown seas to the southward, as told by John Winterstraw, gentleman, to his son James Winterstraw in the year 1757, and by him committed very properly and legibly to manuscript. Chapter 9 what happened in the dusk. Now with the coming of the dawn, a lasting silence stole across the island and into the valley, and conceiving that we had nothing more to fear, the boatswain bade us get some rest whilst he kept watch, and so I got at last a very substantial little spell of sleep which made me fit enough for the day's work. Presently, after some hours had passed, the boatswain roused us to go with him to the further side of the island to gather fuel, and soon we were back with each a load, so that in a little we had the fire going right merrily. Now for breakfast we had a hash of broken biscuit, salt meat, and some shellfish which the boatswain had picked up from the beach at the foot of the further hill the whole being right liberally flavored with some of the vinegar, which the boatswain said would help keep down any scurvy that might be threatening us. And at the end of the meal he served out to us each a little of the molasses, which we mixed with hot water and drank. The meal being ended, he went into the tent to take a look at Job, the which he had done already in the early morning, for the condition of the lad preyed somewhat upon him, he being, for all his size and top roughness, a man of surprisingly tender heart. Yet the boy remained much as on the previous evening, so that we knew not what to do with him to bring him into better health. One thing we tried knowing that no food had passed his lips since the previous morning, and that was to get some little quantity of hot water, rum, and molasses down his throat, for it seemed to us that he might die from very lack of food, but though we worked with him for more than the half of an hour, we could not get him to come to sufficiently to take anything, and without that we had fear of suffocating him. And so, presently, we had perforce to leave him within the tent and go about our business, for there was very much to be done. Yet, before we did aught else, the boatswain led us all into the valley, being determined to make a very thorough exploration of it. Perchance there might be any lurking beast or devil thing waiting to rush out and destroy us as we worked. And more, he would make search that he might discover what manner of creatures had disturbed our night. 
Now, in the early morning, when we had gone for the fuel, we had kept to the upper skirt of the valley, where the rock of the nearer hill came down into the spongy ground. But now we struck right down into the middle part of the vale, making a way amid the mighty fungi to the pit-like opening that filled the bottom of the valley. Now, though the ground was very soft, there was in it so much of springiness that it left no trace of our steps after we had gone on a little way, none, that is, save that in odd places a wet patch followed upon our treading. Then, when we got ourselves near to the pit, the ground became softer, so that our feet sank into it and left very real impressions, and here we found tracks most curious and bewildering. For amid the slush that edged the pit, which I would mention here had less the look of a pit now that I had come near to it, were multitudes of markings which I can liken to nothing so much as the tracks of mighty slugs amid the mud, only that they were not altogether like to that of slugs, for there were other markings such as might have been made by bunches of eels cast down and picked up continually. At least this is what they suggested to me, and I do but put it down as such. Apart from the markings, which I have mentioned, there was everywhere a deal of slime, and this we traced all over the valley, among the great toadstool plants. But beyond that which I have already remarked, we found nothing. Nay, but I was near to forgetting, we found a quantity of this thin slime upon those fungi, which filled the end of the little valley nearest to our encampment. And here also we discovered many of them fresh broken or uprooted, and there was the same mark of the beast upon them all, and now I remember the dull thuds that I had heard in the night, and made little doubt but that the creatures had climbed the great toadstools, so that they might spy us out, and it may be that many climbed upon one, so that their weight broke the fungi, or uprooted them. At least so the thought came to me. And so we made an end to our search, and after that the bosun set each one of us to work. But first he had us all back to the beach to give a hand to turn over the boat, so that he might get to the damaged part. Now having the bottom of the boat full to his view, he made a discovery that there was other damage beside that of the burst plank. For the bottom plank of all had come away from the keel, which seemed to us a very serious matter, though it did not show when the boat was upon her bilges. Yet the boatswain assured us that he had no doubts but that she could be made seaworthy, though it would take a greater while than hitherto he had thought needful. Having concluded his examination of the boat, the boatswain sent one of the men to bring the bottom boards out of the tent, for he needed some planking for the repair of the damage. Yet when the boards had been brought, he needed still something which they could not supply, and this was a length of very sound wood of some three inches in breadth each way, which he intended to bolt against the starboard side of the keel, after he had gotten the planking replaced so far as was possible. He had hopes that by means of this device he would be able to nail the bottom plank to this, and then caulk it with oakum, so making the boat almost so sound as ever. Now hearing him express his need for such a piece of timber, we were all adrift to know from whence such a thing could be gotten, 
until there came suddenly to me a memory of the mast and topmast upon the other side of the island, and at once I made mention of them. At that the boatswain nodded, saying that we might get the timber out of it, though it would be a work requiring some considerable labor, in that we had only a hand saw and a small hatchet. Then he sent us across to be getting it clear of the weed, promising to follow when he had made an end of trying to get the two displaced planks back into position. Having reached the spars, we set to with a very good will to shift away the weed and rack that was piled over them and very much entangled with the rigging. Presently we had laid them bare, and so we discovered them to be in remarkably sound condition, the lower mast especially being a fine piece of timber. All the lower and top mast standing rigging was still attached, though in places the lower rigging was stranded so far as halfway up the shrouds, yet there remained much that was good, and all of it quite free from rot, and of the very finest quality of white hemp, such as to be seen only in the best found vessels. About the time that we had finished clearing the weed, the boatswain came over to us, bringing with him the saw and the hatchet. Under his directions, we cut the lanyards of the topmast rigging, and after that sawed through the topmast just above the cap. Now this was a very tough piece of work, and employed us a great part of the morning, even though we took turn and turn at the saw, and when it was done we were mightily glad that the boatswain bade one of the men go over with some weed and make up the fire for dinner, after which he was to put on a piece of the salt meat to boil. In the meanwhile, the boatswain had started to cut through the topmast about fifteen feet beyond the first cut, for that was the length of the batten he required. Yet so wearisome was the work that we had not gotten more than half through with it before the man whom the boatswain had sent returned to say that the dinner was ready. When this was dispatched, and we had rested a little over our pipes, the boatswain rose and led us back, for he was determined to get through with the top mast before dark. Presently, relieving each other frequently, we completed the second cut, and after that the boatswain set us to saw a block about twelve inches deep from the remaining portion of the top mast. From this, when we had cut it, he proceeded to hew wedges with the hatchet. Then he notched the end of the fifteen-foot log, and into the notch he drove the wedges, and so, towards evening, as much, maybe by good luck as good management, he had divided the log into two halves, the split running very fairly down the center. Now, perceiving how that it drew near to sundown, he bade the men haste and gather weed and carry it across to our camp, but one he sent along the shore to make a search for shellfish among the weed. Yet he himself ceased not to work at the divided log, and kept me with him as helper. Thus, within the next hour, we had a length, maybe some four inches in diameter, split off the whole length of one of the halves, and with this he was very well content, though it seemed but very little result for so much labor. 
By this time the dusk was upon us, and the men, having made an end of weed-carrying, were returned to us and stood about waiting for the bosun to go into camp. At this moment the man the bosun had sent to gather shellfish returned, and he had a great crab upon his spear, which he had spitted through the belly. This creature could not have been less than a foot across the back, and had a very formidable appearance. Yet it proved to be a most tasty matter for our supper when it had been placed for a while in boiling water. Now so soon as this man was returned, we made at once for the camp, carrying with us the piece of timber which we had hewn from the topmast. By this time it was quite dusk, and very strange amid the great fungi as we struck across the upper edge of the valley to the opposite beach. Particularly I noticed that the hateful moldy odor of these monstrous vegetables was more offensive than I had found it to be in the daytime though this may be because I used my nose the more, in that I could not use my eyes to any great extent. We had gotten halfway across the top of the valley, and the gloom was deepening steadily, when there stole to me upon the calmness of the evening air a faint smell, something quite different from that of the surrounding fungi. A moment later I got a great whiff of it, and was near sickened with the abomination of it, but the memory of that foul thing which had come to the side of the boat in the dawn gloom before we discovered the island roused me to a terror beyond that of the sickness of my stomach, for suddenly I knew what manner of thing it was that had beslimed my face and throat upon the previous night and left its hideous stench lingering in my nostrils, and with the knowledge I cried out to the bosun to make haste, for there were demons with us in the valley." and at that some of the men made to run, but he bade them, in a very grim voice, stay where they were and keep well together, else would they be attacked and overcome, straggled all among the fungi in the dark. And this, being I doubt not as much in fear of the rounding dark as of the bosun, they did, and so we came safely out of the valley, though there seemed to follow us a little lower down the slope an uncanny slithering, Now, so soon as we reached the camp, the bosun ordered four fires to be lit, one on each side of the tent, and this we did, lighting them at the embers of our old fire, which we had most foolishly allowed to die down. When the fires had been got going, we put on the boiler, and treated the great crab, as I have already mentioned, and so fell to upon a very hearty supper. But as we ate, each man had his weapon stuck in the sand beside him, for we had knowledge that the valley held some devilish thing, or maybe many, though the knowing did not spoil our appetites. And so, presently, we came to an end of eating, whereat each man pulled out his pipe, intending to smoke, but the boatswain told one of the men to get him upon his feet and keep watch, else might we be in danger of surprise, with every man lolling upon the sand. And this seemed to me very good sense, for it was easy to see that the men, too readily, deemed themselves secure by reason of the brightness of the fires about them.
Now, whilst the men were taking their ease within the circle of the fires, the boatswain lit one of the dips which we had out of the ship in the creek, and went in to see how Job was after the day's rest. At that I rose up, reproaching myself for having forgotten the poor lad, and followed the boatswain into the tent. Yet I had but reached the opening, when he gave out a loud cry, and held the candle low down to the sand. At that I saw the reason for his agitation, for in the place where we had left Job there was nothing. I stepped into the tent, and in the same instant there came to my nostrils the faint odor of the horrible stench which had come to me in the valley, and before then from the thing that came to the side of the boat. And suddenly I knew that Job had fallen prey of those foul things, and knowing this I called out to the boatswain that they had taken the boy and then my eyes caught the smear of slime upon the sand, and I had proof that I was not mistaken. Now, so soon as the boatswain knew all that was in my mind, though indeed it did but corroborate that which had come to his own, he came swiftly out from the tent, bidding the men to stand back, for they had come all about the entrance, being very much discomposed by that which the boatswain had discovered. Then the boatswain took from a bundle of the reeds, which they had cut at the time when he had bidden them gather fuel, several of the thickest, and to one of these he bound a great mass of dry weed, whereupon the men, divining his intention, did likewise with the others, and so we had each of us the wherewithal for a mighty torch. So soon as we had completed our preparations, we took each man his weapon, and plunging our torches into the fires, set off along the track which had been made by the devil things and the body of poor Job. For now that we had suspicion that harm had come to him, the marks in the sand and the slime were very plain to be seen, so that it was a wonder that we had not discovered them earlier. Now the boatswain led the way, and finding the marks led direct to the valley, he broke into a run, holding his torch well above his head. At that each of us did likewise, for we had a great desire to be together, and further than this, I think with truth I may say, we were all fierce to avenge Job, so that we had less of fear in our hearts than otherwise had been the case. In less than the half of a minute we had reached the end of the valley, but here, the ground being of a nature not happy in the revealing of tracks, we were at fault to know in which direction to continue. At that the boatswain set up a loud shout to Job, perchance he might be yet alive, but there came no answer to us save a low and uncomfortable echo. Then the boatswain, desiring to waste no more time, ran straight down towards the center of the valley, and we followed kept our eyes very open about us. We had gotten perhaps halfway when one of the men shouted that he saw something ahead, but the boatswain had seen it earlier, for he was running straight down upon it, holding his torch high and swinging his great cutlass. Then, instead of smiting, he fell upon his knees beside it, and the following instant we were up with him, and in that same moment it seemed to me that I saw a number of white shapes melt swiftly into the shadows further ahead. But I had no thought for these when I perceived that by which the boatswain knelt, for it was the stark body of Job, and no inch of it but was covered with little ringed marks that I had discovered upon my throat, and from every place there ran a trickle of blood, so that he was a most horrid and fearsome sight.
At the sight of Job so mangled and be bled, there came over us the sudden quiet of a mortal terror. And in that space of silence the boatswain placed his hand over the poor lad's heart. But there was no movement, though the body was still warm. Immediately upon that he rose to his feet, a look of vast wrath upon his great face. He plucked his torch from the ground, into which he had plunged the haft, and stared round into the silence of the valley, but there was no living thing in sight. Nothing save the giant fungi and the strange shadows cast by our great torches and the loneliness. At this moment, one of the men's torches, having burnt near out, fell all to pieces, so that he held nothing but the charred support, and immediately two more came to a like end. Upon this we became afraid that they should not last us back to the camp, and we looked to the boatswain to know his wish, but the man was very silent, and peering everywhere into the shadows. Then a fourth torch fell to the ground in a shower of embers, and I turned to look. In the same instant there came a great flare of light behind me, accompanied by the dull thud of a dry matter set suddenly alight. I glanced swiftly back to the boatswain, and he was staring up at one of the giant toadstools, which was in flames all along its nearer edge, and burning with an incredible fury, sending out spirits of flame, and anon giving out sharp reports. And at each report a fine powder was belched in thin streams, which, getting into our throats and nostrils, set us sneezing and coughing most lamentably, so that I am convinced, had any enemy come upon us at that moment, we had been undone by reason of our uncouth helplessness. Now whether it had come to the boatswain to set alight this first of the fungi, I know not, for it may be that his torch, coming by chance against it, set it afire. However it chanced, the boatswain took it as a variable hint from Providence, and was already setting his torch to one a little further off, whilst the rest of us were near to choking with our coughings and sneezings. Yet that we were so suddenly overcome by the potency of the powder, I doubt if a full minute passed before we were each one busied after the manner of the boatswain. And those whose torches had burned out knocked flaming pieces from the burning fungus, and with these impaled upon their torch sticks did so much execution as any. And thus it happened that within five minutes of this discovery of Job's body, the whole of that hideous valley sent up to heaven the reek of its burning, whilst we, filled with murderous desires, ran hither and thither with our weapons, seeking to destroy the vile creatures that had brought the poor lad to so unholy a death. Yet nowhere could we discover any brute or creature upon which to ease our vengeance. And so, presently, the valley becoming impassable by reason of the heat, the flying sparks, and the abundance of the acrid dust, we made back to the body of the boy, and bore him thence to the shore. And during all that night no man of us slept, and the burning of the fungi sent up a mighty pillar of flame out of the valley, as out of the mouth of a monstrous pit. And when the morning came, it still burned. Then when it was daylight, some of us slept, being greatly awearied, but some kept watch.
then, when we waked, there was a great wind and rain upon the island. You've been listening to The Boats of the Glen Carrig by William Hope Hodgson, read by Paul R. Potts. This audio recording is made available under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 2.5 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org. Links for the project can be found at thepotshouse.org. The music for Chapter 9 is by Mystified, from the albums Ophir and These Fragments, available at darkwinter.com. Sound effects are taken from the album Thaw, field recordings from Minnesota, available at wanderingear.com.